Let me take a poll of the room. I would love to know who I'm talking to this morning. Um, the, uh, the session was described as preparing for parenting adult children, um, but some of you aren't preparing for that. You already have adult children. So uh, a question is, how many of you here still have children at home? Let me see your hands. Okay, very good. And how many of you, your oldest child is 10 or younger? Wow. These are the people. Look at who these people are. These are the wise people. <laughs> they get it. They understand. Uh, figure it out now because uh, down the road, um, when you figure this out, sometimes it's too late. Um, how many of you are empty nesters? They're all gone. Isn't it great? <laughs> is it, it is so fun. It is so awesome. Um, Love my girls, but uh, love the empty nest. And I tell you that, I tell you that so that you have some hope. If you're in the midst of uh, the difficulties of parenting, there is a very bright horizon ahead of you, and it's the empty nest. Um, and if you uh, plan for that, and that's a different session, I suppose, but if you plan for that well, uh, it really is the blessing of life. We're going to talk about that a little bit. One of the uh, things that uh, the way that I should have titled the session is uh, that I um, just figured out probably last week is I should have called it Mind the Gap. How many of you have been to England and you've been on the, uh, uh, the underground and every time they pull into a station, what do they say? Mind the Gap. And uh, Mind the Gap means pay attention to that distance between the train and the platform that you're going to step on. And if you misjudge that gap, um, it can be embarrassing and maybe even painful. Um, this phrase was um, introduced in 1969 on the uh, British Underground, and um, we hear it in my home all the time. One person in particular always says, mind the gap. And so really what we're doing today is we're minding the gap. And the goal in, a, in the British Underground and any, any other train station is that when the train pulls into the station, that gap isn't too big, right? It's as close as possible. And what we want to do this morning is talk about how to make the gap as small as possible between having dependent children and independent children, or having the full house and the empty nest, okay? So that's kind of what we're going to talk about this morning, and this really is a 30,000-foot uh, overview of parenting um, and the dynamics of the parent-child relationship. Um, I'm attempting to address a wide range of issues this morning, and I, I need to say up front um, that some of what I say this morning will apply to you now. Some of it may not apply for a while. Um, that it's totally dependent on where you're at and what your family is like. Um, some of you will hear what I say, and you say, that would have been nice to apply years ago, but that's all in the rearview mirror now. Um, the other thing I want to tell you in advance is I'm not up here because I'm an expert in parenting. Um, at best, I'm experienced. The kids are grown and, and gone. But what I talk about this morning is, uh, is the uh, product of Bible study, um, mistakes, and, and observation. And the Bible study part is the most important. The Bible is so clear. It is so relevant. It is the words of life. And the Bible does provide answers, and it, it is um, so helpful in the dilemmas that we face in the parenting um, 
task we've been given. Uh, as far as mistakes, you can ask my daughters. Um, you can ask my wife. Uh, they are all very articulate, probably, on the mistakes that were made in the Hamilton home. Uh, the Hamilton home was not a perfect home. And again, I, I'm making the case that I'm not up here because I'm some kind of uh, a parenting expert. And then observation. Ann and I, throughout our marriage, for the most part, have been involved in youth ministry for the last 31 years. And we've seen a lot of um, uh, young people. We've seen the product of what happens in the home, both good um, and bad. Um, and so some of what we talk about this morning will be based on those observations. So this morning, if you, I think if you hear what, what happens here, you're going to inform your parenting with a long-term view. Um, I want to inform purposeful parenting that considers the issues you have in front of you today in light of what's coming way down the, for some of you, way down the road. When you learn to drive, well, let me ask this. How many of you are teaching some, a child to drive right now? Pray for these people. Okay. All right, those of you that are teaching your child to drive know, or maybe you don't know this, maybe you should teach this, I learned, don't stare at the bumper in front of you, right? If you stare at the bumper in front of you, if you fixate on that car that's just in front of you, you're missing the whole picture. And the idea is to train a new driver, take your eyes above that car that's in front of you, and as much as possible have a 180 view um, look far down the road. In other words, you want to anticipate, not just react. And in many ways, approaching the gap between having young children and adult children or a full nest and an empty nest requires you to take your eyes off of what's happening on the calendar this week with all of uh, ballet classes, baseball practice, um, swim lessons, whatever else is going on, take your eyes off of that, look, take the longer view, and then start letting that wider view, that anticipation, start informing what you do today. And the relevant view as you lift your eyes off the bumper in front of you is, is that your role as a parent is changing, and it will continue to change, and it should change. And mom and dad should anticipate and even drive that change. Okay? It's, it's a God-ordained change, and I'm going to define what I'm talking about here when I say change. It's God-ordained change, and I think you'll see this morning that the Bible is so helpful both in anticipating and then walking through um, that change. Okay? So with that introduction, let me start our time in prayer. Lord, we are dependent on you for wisdom, for truth, um, for grace, Lord, we're grateful to you for the children you've given us. What a gift. Um, what a blessing. They are a daily reminder of your love for us and your kindness towards us. Lord, everyone here this morning, um, I'm sure it joins in the prayer that you would give us the grace, the wisdom, and the truth that would allow us to faithfully fulfill the responsibilities that you've given us as mom and dad. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I fully recognize that what we're going to talk about this morning is a complicated, thorny topic, okay? And I say thorny because everything I say here this morning is going to be um, heard through the filter of your own personal experience. Every one of you grew up in a home. Every one of you went through 
the gap that we're talking about, where you left your home and became an independent adult. And then God gave you a spouse and children, and here you are today. And I recognize that what we talk about today is going to be heard through that filter. I also recognize that some of you, looking at it the other way, have children. Some of you still have children at home, but you've had children leave your home, and that hasn't gone so well, or it's gone great. Um, and so I, I understand that um, this is complicated and, and a bit delicate um, and somewhat thorny, and I say that so that if I offend you by what I say this morning, I will stick around as long as possible. Come tell me, okay? I don't mean to, is what I'm telling you. Um, but there's certain realities and difficulties that um, um, may not be addressed this morning, and so if I raise questions that I don't answer, please come talk to me and let me know either this morning or another time. Those of you with an empty nest, the relationship you have with your adult children is the result and a function of decades of history of your family. That's over. It's written. Um, and every family is, is unique. There's no two families that write that story the same way. Um, and I have to tell you, and you're going to hear this, I am not going to hand you the silver bullet this morning and say this is the way to do it. That's the difficulty of what we're going to talk about. That's the complication. That's the delicacy, if you will, of what we're going to talk about. For those of you that have a full nest, the relationship you will have with your children someday is a function of a thousand different things that happen in your home right now. And the idea is to prepare for that future relationship um, by making maybe some different decisions now. I, I think I speak for Anne when I say we found every stage of parenting um, an awful lot of fun, just better than the last. You know, when, the, when you have the newborn and the toddler and then no more diapers, remember that day? Some of you are praying for that day. Um, I was reminded by a young mom this week, by the way, that that's not necessarily a happy day because now you have to be close to a bathroom. And, uh, okay, I get it. But when you go through all those stages, it's somewhat emotional sometimes, very nostalgic. Um, but um, the idea is that you can focus on all of those gates that you're going through as they're gone, or you can turn around and focus on what's ahead of you. And when you go through the kids going off to school, the teen years, then they go off to college, and then independence, marriage, and grandchildren. We call that the circle of life, okay? It's how you got here. It's where you're going, okay? So leaving behind every stage is, is probably nostalgic, but it has been for us, by God's grace, uh, a passageway to a whole new experience and a whole new vista, which we never understood until we got there. I still look back in the early days of parenting with great fondness. Um, in fact, we tend to forget the hard days, don't we? The, the difficult times, because it is such a blessing. So let's not keep looking backwards. We need to look forwards. And perhaps one of the most tr difficult transitions in life is the emptying of the nest. So those of you that have been through that know that's true. It's the end of an era. It's the end of, it's not the end of all things, by the way. I can assure you of that. 
It's just the last of a unique relationship of a group of human beings that are used to living together under the same roof with common memories, common culture, um, common familiarity. And we get used to that. And when that's going to change, the earth starts moving sometimes. And it's less of a transition if you begin planning for it early. Um, Some parents never see it coming, partly because they don't want to see it coming. Others see it coming, and they fight against this transition with everything they've got. And today I want you to be the parents that see it, that embrace it, and lead and guide your family to it and through it, to the glory of God. You've heard of the Great Depression. You've heard of the Great Recession. This morning we're going to talk about the Great Transition. Okay? It's coming. If you have children in junior, senior, high right now, you may not have realized it, but you're staring down at the end of the beginning, if you will, of that transition. It's not ahead of you. It's already happening. At least it is in your child's mind. And I want to make the case this morning that you're already in the midst of that great transition. And let me be very specific what I'm talking about. The great transition is going from completely dependent children to independent children, meaning they're independent of you. Compliant children to non-compliant children. By that I mean, some of you are going, where are the, where are the compliant children? <laughs> I'm talking about the children who at one stage in their life, if not now, comply with your rules. And you're transitioning to children who, make, who go off and make their own decisions. Accountable children to unaccountable children, meaning they're not accountable to you. Ever-present children to absent children. That's hard. Expectation of complete obedience from your children to the hope for honor. Intense training and instruction of these little human beings to actually peer friendship relationship with these human beings a member of your family unit, to someone who has their own family unit. And, of course, all of that means a full nest to an empty nest. Fun times, isn't it? It's inevitable. It's by God's design. We're going to see that this morning. The close family unit is coming to an end. And before you think I'm raining on your parade, let me say it one more time. The empty nest is great. It can be. It's so different. You're going to become an in-law. You're going to become a grandparent by God's grace. I still can't believe I'm married to a granny. How did that happen? Granny Annie. She wants to be called Granny Annie. (laughs) Grandchildren, the great blessing of grandchildren is so fun if you set the stage now. And by the way, your marriage needs to be ready for this also. And that's a session maybe for another July. But let's look closer at the parenting transition. Um, If you're parenting teens, you know it's different than parenting infants and toddlers and young children. And parenting adults, if there is such a thing, is altogether different than from parenting teens. Your parenting is transitioning, and it should be, from how the Bible describes the parent-child relationship at the beginning of life and how the Bible defines the parent-child relationship at the end of life. And the Bible does define both of those. What the Bible doesn't define is, when does it change? 
And we're going to talk about that this morning. So what's the difference between the parent-child and the parent-adult relationship? It's important to understand this as a backdrop for how your parenting should progress. And, and you know how it is now. If you know how your parenting is now, and I think we're going to put some labels on that this morning, you'll walk out of here knowing kind of where you're at now. And you understand, hopefully, by God's kindness after listening to me, you, you know where it's going. Then you hopefully are informed in your parenting on how to get to where it's going because it's inevitable. It's going there. So let's talk about the beginning of life. And just so you know, here's what we're going to do this morning. I'm going to talk about the beginning of life, and I'm going to talk about the end of life. The parent-child relationship as it's explained in Scripture. And then we're going to talk about that transition between those two. And then I'm going to close the gap. Two gaps. One is children to adults. I'm going to give you some action items, things to think about on how to narrow that gap um, in terms of your children becoming adults and then closing the gap between the full house you have now and the empty house you're going to have. Okay? That's where we're going. Let's talk about beginning of life. And I don't think any of this is going to be very surprising to you. Ephesians 6 1 says, Children, what? Very good. Parents always know this verse. <laughs> children, children, obey your parents in the Lord. It's very important. In the Lord, for this is right. What's the second verse say? Honor. Parents really know this verse. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Colossians 3.20, parallel passage says, Children, be obedient to your parents. What? In all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Now, let's break this down a little bit. Let's talk about the beginning, beginning of life. There is no question that at the beginning of life, your child, when you brought that infant home, that relationship was defined by their obedience to you. And what's interesting, when you think about it, and I've thought about it, the child starts out completely unable to disobey, right? Do you remember that? It was oh so brief. I understand if you forgot that. But when you bring them home and you lay them in the crib and you say stay and you leave the room, are they going to be there when you come back? They're going to be right where you left them. I don't know, six, nine months later, you say stay, you pray they're going to be there when you get back, right? So at the beginning of life, they're unable to disobey. They are completely compliant and obedient. And of course, that doesn't mean they're not sinners. That just means they're unable to act on their sin. And you've, you know pretty quickly um, that all of that changes. What about honor? At the beginning of life, it is completely beyond the capacity of an infant to honor mom and dad. Right? Doesn't that make sense? Honor is a complex topic that we're going to talk about this morning. It's a concept that's developed, it's nurtured, it's trained. So, the beginning of life, they're to obey mom and dad. They're at, at the very beginning, they're unable to disobey, and they are to honor mom and dad. They're completely unable to honor mom and dad. Practically, they're also completely dependent. Your children live with you. They eat with you. They travel with you. You choose their food. You choose their home. 
You choose their church. In many ways, you choose their relationships, their schedule, their leisure, their academics, right? You're, you're making all those decisions at the beginning of life. The goal of a parent is that that dependence ends and that there is independence. One more area, the area of influence, practical observation. The Bible's clear the beginning of life is obedience, okay? But you also have honor in the mix, you have dependence, and the other thing is influence. Something maybe you haven't thought about is the greatest influence you had was the day you brought that baby home from the hospital. And maybe the next day and the next day. But understand that at the beginning of life, you have the ultimate influence on your child. Necessarily and naturally, your role as their most significant influence is on a glide path towards none, possibly. Okay? That's hard to hear. It's hard medicine to take. You may continue to have some influence, but you will never have the influence with them later in their life that you have at the beginning of their life. Okay? Does that make sense? Now let's talk about the end of life. The end of life. You're on your deathbed. What is your relationship with your child? The Bible makes this also pretty clear, but to get there, let me ask you a question. How many of you call your parents and ask them if it's okay for you and your spouse to be out to dinner past 11? You laughed. You don't do that? I didn't think so. You ask your parents if it's okay to buy a car? You ask them if it's okay to buy that house? Hopefully you think that's a little weird, right? Do any of you want your children calling you and asking you for permission to be out past 11 when they're 40 years old? Oh, good. I'm so glad you laughed. I think there's some parents that actually would like that. Hopefully, you look forward to not being in that role. And what I just went through, do you call your parents and ask permission? Do, your, uh, do you want your older kids to call you and ask for permission? That's, that can be very cultural. And I don't want to elevate that, your response to being biblical truth, but it just happens to be that it is. Let me ask you this. When did that aspect of the relationship with your parents end? And and I'm not looking for an answer here. I am actually thinking, trying to get you to start thinking this through. Because if you think, like I told you, you're going to hear everything I say today through the filter of your own experience. And sometimes that's good, sometimes that's bad. But you need to think about it. When did that nature, when did that aspect of your relationship with your parents end and why did it end? You currently and clearly, if you have young children in the home, have the authority given by the God of the universe to require the obedience of your children. And by the way, if you're not requiring their their obedience, you are not obedient. Okay? It's all over the place. So, is there a biblical basis for that authority to end? And the answer is yes. You don't call your parents for permission to be out past 11 for a very good reason that you may not even know. And it comes down to this, that all authority is delegated by God, as it says in Romans 13.1 and all kinds of other places, and that authority is delegated to imperfect human beings, you and me. 
So the authority of government is delegated by God. The authority of parents, delegated by God. The authority of elders in the church, delegated by God. And God does, doesn't just delegate authority. In his word, he's very specific about a couple of things. He's very specific about the, uh, the purpose of that authority, the scope of that authority, the length of that authority, and any other limits on that authority. Okay? So, the authority delegated to you as parents to require the obedience of your children is delegated by the God of the universe for a specific purpose to a specific group of people for a limited time, and I want to walk through that with you. What's the limited scope? That's an accounting word, I suppose. It means this. I can require the obedience of my children, but I don't get to walk in your house and have require your children to obey me. You see what I'm saying? The Bible is very clear about that. Children obey your parents, not his parents, her parents, the most popular parent. It's obey your parents. And by the way, let me tell you, we've been involved in youth ministry at Grace most of our married life, and probably the overriding message to junior high and high school students at this church is, obey your parents. Why? Because it's commanded. You want to know that you're in God's will? Obey your parents. Not anybody else's parents. Don't go home to your parents and say, but Billy's parents say this, obey your parents. Okay? Limited purpose. Here's the purpose of the authority that's been delegated to you to require the obedience of your children. And I would love if we had time to do a Q&A here with me asking the questions and you giving the answers, why do you think God gave you that purpose? You'd be amazed the scope of answers, but it's really this. It is to teach submission and obedience to who? Good, to God, not to you. You require obedience to you as a means to teach obedience and submission to the God of the universe and other earthly authority. School, church, employment, government. Okay? In other words, and and this is a whole other session, the goal of your parenting is to teach obedience, that phrase, that concept, that character trait, that the, the human being you produce from your home understands what it means to obey authority. Your children are not required to obey you because it makes their life easier or because they will embarrass you if they don't. That is not why you're teaching obedience. The purpose of the authority, one more time, is to teach them to obey God and his appointed authority. That's it. Psalm 111.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom and a good understanding, or wisdom have all those who what? Do his commandments. Obey. You want, to teach, you want to have obedient children, you teach the fear of God. You want to have obedient children, you teach wisdom. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. The product of the fear of God and wisdom is what? Obedience. Okay? And I'm skipping over. I'm going really fast through stuff. These, much of this are other, whole sessions we could spend developing this. The goal and purpose is not that they obey and submit to you. You want to produce men and women from your home. I always say this. You're not producing sons and daughters. You're producing a man 
You're producing a woman from your home who obey and submit to God and the authority delegated by God, whatever that authority is in their life. And so we've seen the limited scope, we've seen the limited purpose, and it is for a limited time. All authority is extended by God, um, is temporary, it's limited in time. Once the purpose has been accomplished, the authority is done. That's it. So, your goal is not to hang on to the authority. It is to be relieved of that authority as soon as you can, which means you have a lot of work to do. Right? Some of you are going, you have no idea how much work I have to do. And I'll also say this, even if the purpose has not been accomplished, the purpose being this, that your children know to obey God and the authority in their life, you see no evidence that they understand that. In fact, they're rebellious. They're not obeying anybody But even in that context, the authority ends at some point. And let me tell you why I say that. When you look at Christ's ministry on earth, he talked about the parent-child relationship a lot. Uh, Just some references, Matthew 15, 4, Mark 7, 10, 10, 19, Luke 18, 20. There's There's several more. When Christ talked about parenting, it was usually in the context of talking to the religious leaders of the day. And in his long list of here's all the ways you need to live if you're going to um, say that you are holy, he never says, obey your parents. He says what? Honor your father and your mother. Now, is he negating the command to obey your parents? He is not. What he's reflecting is that he was talking to adult grown men who have their own families, who have passed that line from the obligation to obey their parents to the obligation to honor their father and mother. And the flip side of that, if there is no longer an obligation to obey mom and dad, there's no longer the authority of mom and dad to what? Require that obedience. An example, Matthew 15, 4, Jesus says, and he quotes Exodus 21 He says, God said, honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. Those are strong words. And that was in the context of Christ laying out to the religious leaders of the day, you want to say you're spiritual? Show me how you honor your father and mother. He never says, show me how you obey your father and mother. So he's talking to and teaching adult men He never quotes the command to obey parents. I think I can say never. If you find it, let me know. I can't find it, that he ever does that. But he always quoted the command to honor your parents. So obviously your relationship with your child must change. At the end of life, obedience is not the issue. You understand when I say at the end of life, I'm going to one extreme, and I started at the other extreme at the beginning of life. So when does it change? When does the requirement to obey parents end? Don't you want to know that? I wanted to know that. This is a question that's kind of like the question we always dealt with in high school ministry. When can my child date? This is coming, parents. There's all kinds of authoritative, hard and fast rules that parents have. The most common one is when they turn 16. 
And I always wondered, I love, amen. Uh, I always wondered what happens at 16? Um, or when they go to college, then they can date. Or for me, I heard somebody say it. I had three daughters, 30 years old. <laughs> None of those answers are supported by Scripture. That's the, that's the question of dating. Again, another session. You're all wanting me to tell you when they can start dating. Not going to do that. <laughs> Not going to do that today. So when does the requirement to obey end? It's a similar question because I hear all kinds of things, and you probably, if you've thought about this question at all, you have an answer. I hope you have an answer. If you haven't thought about that question, the whole point of this morning is to start thinking about that question. That is the key to your long-term parenting, to minding the gap. At what point does the requirement that your children obey you end? I've heard 21 years old. I've heard college graduation because, by golly, if I'm paying tuition, they're obeying me. (laughs) I've heard when they move out of the house. Okay, I've heard when I'm no longer paying their bills. I've heard men misquote the last verse of Genesis 2 to make the case that it's marriage, um, that my daughter is going to obey me until uh, I hand her over to her husband, and then she's going to obey him. I've heard some parents actually make the case for never. Because that verse that says, children, obey your parents in all things. So when does it end? Is any of that biblical? Is any of that practical? Any of that helpful? Have you ever thought about this question? If you haven't, you can walk out of this class with no other homework than that. Think about that question. And mom and dad, you should be talking about that question. And the answer from the Bible is that the Bible does not say. Isn't that a bummer? I'm sorry. We all want the Bible to give us answers like that. But let me make some observations about what is in the Bible. The issue is maturity, not life, station, or circumstances. Remember, you're delegated the authority of requiring the obedience of your children for what purpose? To teach them to obey God and all of the delegated authority that God has appointed in their life, right? Maturity means that they've learned that lesson, they've demonstrated an understanding of that lesson, you're almost done. So that's the issue. The time will vary from child to child, and this is the brilliance and the wisdom of Scripture, because if you have more than one child, you know one came from Venus and the other one came from Mars, right? They are completely different sometimes. And there is freedom in Scripture that takes into account that no two human beings are the same. I believe the goal should be that they are no longer required to obey you. This is going to blow some minds in here. I think the goal should be that this happens before they leave your home. Okay? And especially for children who make a profession of faith, it should be very quick. Once they make a profession of faith, then you're calling them to live in accordance with what? Who they say they are. 
And so the issue in your home, particularly with a teenager, they should hear more about submission and obedience to God than they hear about submission and obedience to mom and dad. I'm not saying you toss out obedience. They need to obey mom and dad. I'm saying whether they know it or not, your mindset should be that obedience is le- to you is less of an issue in their teen years than it was when they were not in their teen years. And how you communicate that to them is, is entirely up to you. You see, the goal from the first day of life right out of Deuteronomy 6 is that you teach and you train and you disciple your children to fear God. That's to love God. Um, and then you teach them wisdom and obedience. I already made that connection for you. And when they don't obey, which I know happens in your home sometimes, you discipline them. In Hebrews 12, again, that's a whole other session, but in Hebrews 12, it talks about the process of how God disciplines you and I, and the goal is to replicate that in the discipline, your discipline of your children, all of it to point them to Christ. And in that process, you're teaching them confession, conviction, forgiveness, restitution, restoration, repentance, all of that, and grace. And that sounds an awful lot like what? The gospel. The gospel. And once that is done, you are done. No more need to require their obedience to them. You call them to obey God, government, teacher, employer, police. And by the way, if you're teaching them from the word of God, you can show them that their roles were established by God before the fall, regardless of whether they're saved or not. And the promise of a blessed life is submission to authority, whether they're saved or not. That's the difference between a wise man and a fool. You want to teach your young man to be wise. You want to teach your young lady to be wise. You cannot affect their salvation. That's between them and the Lord. But you can produce an unsaved young man from your home who understands who God is. Maybe he's rejected them, but he's wise and he's obedient. And the Bible promises by the amazing kindness of God that he will live a blessed life. That is what you're trying to produce. So let's talk about the emptying of the nest and children becoming adults. And first I want to talk about, as I told you, I would close the gap between, being, between having dependent children and independent adults. I'm going to give you four things to think about, but before we get there, I do want to tell you there is some urgency here. Depending on where you are on the parenting spectrum, the clock is running. Do you hear that tick-tock? I understand that, and I'm not trying to freak you out this morning. I'm actually trying to encourage you um, to realize you have some work to do, and it's doable, Okay? The gap from childhood in your home to adulthood outside your home needs to be as small as possible. And if you think about, if you take your little guy um, out hiking and you say, let's jump from here to there, what do they do? If it's too far, they're what? They're afraid. And if it's not too far, sometimes it is too far, they just don't know it, they just go at it and jump, right? That doesn't really change as your children grow up. When you send them from your home, the comfort of your home, into a cold, hard, rude world, you want to make that gap as small as possible for their benefit. 
okay? The relationship between independence and responsibility experienced in your home should be pretty close to the relationship between independence and responsibility that they're going to experience outside your home, when they leave your home, for college, for marriage. That's the goal. That is what the rest of this session is about, and I want you to consider how to do that. A young person who leaves the home never experiencing the interchange. You know what I mean when I say the interchange between freedom and responsibility or independence and responsibility? Is that a huge disadvantage? I'll give you some observation. We've seen young people who get to college and suddenly nobody cares what time they get home at night. Nobody's checking what they're doing on their phone or on the Internet. Mom and dad aren't hovering over their friend choices. Mom and dad have no idea if they want to go out drinking. You guys getting scared yet? It's in your future. Who they spend time with, what they're doing on the Internet, and they go wild. And nine times out of ten in a case like that, that's a young person who never experienced independence at home with the requisite accountability that goes with that independence. And responsibility, a a young person who has not felt the consequences of immature and bad decisions goes out when they get on their own and they make bad decisions and they experience these consequences and they're shocked. Although you might have shielded them from consequences, life is going to come at them very hard and fast. you understand that? Your child is not as special to a cold, hard, cruel world as you think they are. The world is merciless, and consequences, just like facts, are stubborn teachers. The link between independence and responsibility is best learned at home, controlled environment where you're there um, to walk them through that. If your children is not saved, they must still come to grips with their accountability to God and to other authority and their exposure to the discipline of the Lord. This understanding should be in place well before the teenage years and definitely should be in place before they leave their home. They should be in fear of God, not you. You know, we see this in in college ministry when somebody comes and confesses something and says, I'm deathly afraid that that person over there is going to find out. And you tell them, do you, you understand God already found out? That's your area of concern, not whether that person over there finds out. That's the concept. So first thing to do, to close that gap between children and adults. Number one, look to grant freedom rather than withhold freedom. And by the way, I'm well aware that little snippets of what I say this morning in isolation can be posted on the Internet, and I will be in big trouble. Please hear everything I say. Look to grant freedom rather than withhold freedom. As you can, you take the initiative as parents to grant the freedom they're going to have anyway rather than fight the inevitable. This is not a game of control. It is a goal of releasing your control. It's grievous to watch parents grasp onto power and control until the very last minute. As each child demonstrates maturity, you honor them by granting more independence with obvious accountability. And as they do well with that freedom, you grant more. 
You're looking for reasons to give them independence, not reasons to clamp down and take it away. But once you give it away, it's tough territory to get it back, isn't it? Those of you who are parenting very young children, you need to think very, very carefully about that. I know you've experienced. It's an error by parents to rush to give their children freedom when they have not demonstrated their requisite maturity to handle that freedom. And then it's compounded when you try and protect them from the consequences of exercising that freedom in an unwise way. Think about this. Clothes your kids wear. Who chooses that? When should that change? You know, parents very often will hand that over to a five-year-old and say, from now on, you pick your clothes. Good luck ever trying to regain that when they're teenagers and they're dressing inappropriately. Something to think about. What to eat? Who chooses? When does that change? Friends. Who chooses their friends? Do you or do they? When does that change? And you're saying, this is weird. What are you talking about? I'm trying to stir up your mind and get you to think about some things. And let me just take it to maybe um, a more dramatic um, illustration. Are you going to give them the keys to your car when they turn 16? No. Yes, you will. Some of you will. I think that's still the law in California, right? It's so nice to be out of that. Why are you going to give them the keys to your car? Is it, is it because the law says you can? No. Is it because all their, other, all their friends are getting the keys to the car? No. It should be because they've demonstrated a maturity that allows you to trust them that when you give them the keys to the car, they're going to obey authority and they're going to be responsible. Okay? So... Car keys. Now roll that back to all these other decisions. When do they decide what clothes they're going to wear, who they're going to hang around with, what they're going to do? There are so many areas of life that you should be examining, not in terms of how do I keep control, but at what point am I going to start releasing decision-making in these areas? And mom and dad need to be on the same page. This is the foundation. These issues are the foundation for demonstrating your honor of them, by the way. You're honoring them, and they might just return it in kind. You're called to prepare them to handle their independence and their direct accountability to God, and by God's design, this happens at home before they get out in the cold world. Their mistakes and successes are in the context of training and discipleship, by the way, not punishment. Do you know that punishment is reserved for God? You're not authorized to punish your children. You say, wait, it says spare the rod, spoil the child. Yeah, you can view that as punishment, or you should view it as the Bible views it, which is discipleship and training, correction, um, and reproof. Okay? So additional independence and freedom is granted as maturity is demonstrated and proven. This is not manipulation, by the way. Well, I guess it kind of is. It's a prominent and explicit condition and a motivation for your children. They want freedom, let them earn it. You will never see a greater motivator for growing up and maturing than a young person who wants their freedom and knows that's the price. 
And when freedom is granted, by the way, it's not grudgingly, and it's not sus- with suspicion. It's joyfully and gladfully, gladly given. You're happy for them because they're moving towards independence, and you are for them. Do not forget to tell them that. They will not believe you at times. Number two, think about when you want your child to stop asking for permission. You say, what in the world is that? I want you to think about this. The day is coming when they no longer need your permission, and they might not even seek your wisdom. You consider, mom and dad, when that will be. It's better that you open that door than that you force your children to push through that door. And I'll explain what I'm talking about. Some of you think it would be great if your children were motivated themselves to keep asking you for permission until they're in their whatever, mid-20s, 30s, 40s. I've heard people say that's a sign of a submissive child. And while that might feed your ego, um, it also might be true that it's a sign of a submissive child. It is inappropriate. And why do I say that? We always tell high school students, what do your parents say? Go find out what mom and dad say, and you do what mom and dad say. Obey your parents. And we also explain to them and most of them don't ever understand this until they get way down in life, but asking parents for the cover of their permission is a crutch. It's necessary in life. It's a, I shouldn't say a crutch. It's a luxury. Asking for a parent's approval is also dangerous because it masks the need for whose approval? God's approval. And what you're trying to teach your children is not to be dependent on you to know what God's will is, but to depend on God to know what God's will is. The parent's authority is limited for the benefit of the child, but that authority and the benefit is limited. And there is a time when you make your own decisions and you live with your own consequences, good and bad. There is a day coming when your child will ask you for permission to do something. And whether you choose to do it this explicitly or not, you will say, I will not give you my permission. But I will give you my wisdom if you want my wisdom. You understand? In other words, it's over. For 20 years or whatever it is, you've had the luxury of asking for my permission. You've had an easy way to know whether this is a good decision or not. Am I obeying my mom and dad? But I'm telling you, it's over. I'm not going to give you my permission anymore. But my wisdom, if I have any, is available if you want it. And by the way, don't be shocked if they say, oh, okay, and they don't ask for your wisdom. (laughs) Parenting is sanctifying. Also, don't be shocked if they say, oh, okay, well, what do you think I should do the opposite? If you're not prepared for that, you're not prepared to say, don't ask for my permission. In other words, that's already done. And mom and dad need to be on the same page of when that's going to happen and how that's going to happen. Give that some thought. Pray about it. If you have a 7-year-old, this is a long way off. If you have a 17-year-old, you're getting either really close or you might even pass the shelf life. Something to think about. And I say that because every child is different. 
There's some 22-year-olds that aren't ready for that yet. I get that. You want to anticipate this together, by the way. This is a great conversation to have with your kids, age-appropriate. It's a great conversation to have with your kids as a motivation for them. You talk about it as it's happening. That's greatly encouraging to a child that they're going through the discipline, discipleship process with mom and dad, and there is a purpose to it. And when it happens, you want to mark it that it's not just the passing of time. They didn't just pass a birthday, therefore, that's how this happens, but because they have demonstrated maturity. Your children want to hear that from you. Number three, closing the gap from children to adults you're going to need to adjust your parenting. You need to adjust your parenting. For example, training in the teen years, as I already said, is very different than training and teaching and parenting um, five, six, seven-year-olds. And I want to take a practical approach this morning and talk about whether you're preparing them for life on their own. Um, we've been involved in college ministry for many years, and I'm astounded at how many collegians recently out of the nest are just completely unprepared for life. And when I say completely, I mean completely. I wonder and even marvel at what happened in that home. What was going on? Well, the, what are some of these practical issues? I, I've met college students who have a credit card who have absolutely no idea how it works. They don't know what a checking account is. They've never written a check. Now, that may mean I'm a dinosaur. I'm hearing more and more that young people don't write checks anymore. I learned about Venmo when my kids went to college. Um, it, it, it's a different world. But the handling of money, meals, the connection between working and eating, I'm amazed how many young people don't get that. That's Life 101. That started in Genesis chapter 3. They don't know their way around a kitchen. They don't know what to do at a grocery store. I, you think I'm overstating this. I am not. Train your children now. You can start that if they're 7 or they're 17. You can start that now. But that's practical issues. Let me talk about big picture disciplines that all of us need to know if we're going to live in this world. Um, and let me prepare you that uh, those of you that have teenage children, you might get a little bit down when you hear this. Bear with it. There's an answer. So many leave for college with no clue on some of this. One purpose. What is their purpose? Why are they here? Why are they in college? This is the discipline of planning and thinking beyond tomorrow. Goals. Do they have goals or dreams? You know the difference between a goal and a dream? A goal has plans attached to it. Dreams have no plans. It's just I want to be an astronaut someday. Um, okay. Uh, why are you majoring in sociology? <laughs> right? You laugh, but that's disciplined thinking. Do they have a goal? Do they have plans to reach those goals? Are they doing the plan? If not, do they understand? That's a really nice conversation, but that's just a dream. Decision-making. Do they know how to decide which school, what major, which church, which boy or girl? What kind of a car? Do they know how to make a decision? Friends. 
Do they understand the value of a good friend? Do they understand the danger of bad company? Do they understand that when it comes to friendship, we're not talking about social associations, we're talking about influence? Wisdom. Do they know that the beginning of wisdom is to what? Fear God and get wisdom every day for the rest of their life. Do they understand that wisdom is a lifelong pursuit? Mom and dad haven't reached that goal. They haven't reached that goal. It's amazing how many college guys don't get this. They think they're already there. Do they know the difference between wisdom from above and that which is earthly, natural, and demonic, as it says in James chapter 3? Are they intimately familiar with the promise that if anyone lacks wisdom, let them what? Ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach. Are they disciplined in asking God for wisdom, not just dad? Do they understand the difference between a wise man and a fool? That a wise man seeks rebuke regularly, constantly, looks for the rebuke. The fool rejects it, doesn't look for it. When it's imposed on it, he, he pushes it away. The discipline of success. Do your children know failure? Do they understand the benefits and the practical wisdom of failure? You see, there's no motivation for success unless there's risk of failure. Do you let them fail? Do you let them feel the consequences of failing? I have known people in the business world who arrive in the business world out of great schools, and they get their first indication that they're not perfect, and they completely fall apart. It's just amazing. If your child doesn't do their homework, do you let them feel the consequences? If they're late for work, do you let them feel the consequences? You see, failure um, caused by foolishness at 15 is much better to deal with than the same thing at 25 or 35. You don't want your child to fail. Obviously, that's not what I'm saying, but they will make mistakes, and do they feel the consequence of those mistakes, and are you there not to tear them down and punish them for the mistakes, but to train, disciple, and teach them through those mistakes? Marriage. Do they understand the definition of marriage? Have they ever seen it in their home? The purpose of marriage, the joys of marriage, the commitments of marriage. Do they know that they get to choose who they're going to love and serve for the rest of their life, and then for the rest of their life that they are going to love and serve that person? This tends to clear up a lot of dating issues, by the way. A good perspective on what marriage is. Do they know what a good husband is and does? Do they know what a good wife is and does? Do they understand the utter foolishness and the utter destructiveness of infidelity and immorality, unfaithfulness in marriage. And I could go on. Scary, isn't it? Now let me help you. The Word of God, everything I just gave you came right out of Proverbs 1 through 7. It's all there. So if you're listening to that list going, oh my goodness, I need to turn the clock back on my kids 10 years. Maybe that's true, but there's hope. Proverbs 1 through 7 is the recording of a father teaching his sons. And I'm proposing that these chapters are a great outline 
for you to change your parenting, particularly in the teen years. You don't have to wait for the teen years, but start working through the issues I just went through right out of the Word of God. I'll give you a quick outline of Proverbs 1 through 7. I'm not advocating the exclusive use of Proverbs 1 through 7, but it sure is better than a parenting book off the shelf. These are the inspired words of God. And it is a recording of a wise man who was far from perfect, very flawed man, teaching his children the realities, the wisdom from above. Proverbs chapter 1 defines wisdom, the consequences of bad choices and bad company. The difference between a fool and a wise man, what I just told you, Proverbs one twenty through the end of the chapter, is the definitive contrast between the wise man and the fool. Wouldn't you want your children to know that? Proverbs chapter 2, how to get wisdom and why to get wisdom. In chapter 2, he deals with discernment and curiosity and discretion. Oh, what would it be like to have young men showing up in our college department who are curious even? Curious. Proverbs 3 deals with kindness, trusting the Lord and not themselves, which goes along with humility, the proper handling of money. I'm an accountant. I always thought I knew how to teach my children how to handle money. You might not be. Did you know that Proverbs can help you with that? Discipline, sleep, interpersonal conflict, dealing with wicked people, the concept of honor. Proverbs chapter 4 deals with honoring parents, bad company, good company. There's a contrast there. Guarding your heart, living with purpose. You picking up some of what I was laying down earlier? It's right out of Proverbs 1 through 7. Chapter 5, difficult to read to your children, deals with discretion and honor, and it talks a lot about the adulterous woman, the strange woman. Strange, not personality. We're talking about a woman who is not their wife. Sexual sin and how it happens. It deals graphically with marital sex. Proverbs 6 talks about investing and borrowing money, hard work, purposeful living, speech, integrity, parenting, the evil woman, the consequences of bad decisions. Proverbs 7, another difficult chapter to read to your young children, how extramarital affairs happen and how extramarital affairs don't happen. Very explicit. Proverbs 1 through 7 was the source of everything I just gave you, of all the things I think you should be preparing your children, young men, young women, you're going to produce from your home. It's right there in the Word of God. So let me apply this a little bit. First of all, if you read Proverbs 1 through 7, and dads, I'm telling you, it's, this is incumbent on you to lead your, uh, your family in getting wisdom from the Word of God. But first of all, take your time. The conversations represented in Proverbs 1 through 7 are snapshots. They are not complete conversations. You'll see that. It takes time. It takes time. The other thing you'll see in Proverbs 1 through 7 is that this father was encouraging his children. He's teaching his sons the benefits, the benefits of wisdom and the fear of God, because that will produce what? Obedience. He also challenges them. Much of Proverbs 1 through 7 is also about the necessity of obedience. You will see over and over 
and over the command to hear my words. Heed what I am telling you. Obey my words. That is why I said, and I say with full authority of Scripture, that if you are not requiring your children to obey, you are not in obedience. Be repetitive. Don't be afraid or scared away by a child who says, Dad, you've told me that a hundred times. Ever heard that? You're doing what you should be doing. If you heard the list I just went through, the outline of Proverbs 1 through 7, I said several topics over and over and over again. Did you catch that? Repetition. Repetition. The best of us are prone to forget. Be practical. View the world around you through the lens of the fear of God and the love of God, the wisdom of God, and the need for obedience to God. Be very, very practical. That's Proverbs 1 through 7. He's also very creative. Proverbs chapter 6 says, go to the ant, oh what? And who did I tell you he was talking to? His sons? He called his son a sluggard? Wow. Be careful this afternoon. I'm not giving you license to do what you think I'm giving you license to do. But he's blunt, he's direct, he's helpful, and he's creative. He points at an ant and says, let's watch the ant. And let's learn some lessons from this little creature that this person spends a lot of time trying to kill. I don't know about you. We don't like ants. They're annoying, right? But they're amazing objects of um, wisdom. You want to be purposeful. The issue is their sin and their foolishness. The issue in your parenting, particularly in the teen years, is not how you think they should vote how you think they should make a living, and what school you think they should go to. The issue as you approach that gap is their sin and their foolishness. You want to be purposeful that way. The goal is their fear of God. They're seeking wisdom from God and obedience to God. This is what drives your conversations. And then you want to be complete. All issues are on the table. If you're scared of talking about a particular topic, That topic's not going to get talked about. And you read through Proverbs 1 through 7, you will see it all talked about. Chapters 5, 6, and 7 address issues. Just reading those chapters out loud to your children will be difficult. It's so blunt. But it's a great example. Be complete. Talk about these issues. Go for it. Number four. Number four. Again, closing the gap, children to adults. I think You should be teaching your children to love the church, to love the church. Do they know how to identify a good church, a bad church, a church that will cause them to grow, a church where they can serve and use their spiritual gifts? Do they understand the value of all of that? I I can tell you from experience that knowing your children are leaving your influence, they're leaving your home. To have the confidence of knowing that they understand and appreciate the church means that they may, may or may not be in your church, but they will find a church. That is what you're looking for. I think about how youth ministry benefited my family. It's just a picture. This isn't a commercial for youth ministry. It's a commercial, if you will, for the church. My children grew up in the church. They were, their sin was confronted by someone other than mom and dad. 
That's how the body of Christ works. There were some young people, turns out, you know, in hindsight, they were 19, 20 years old, who were making brutally honest assessments about my children, and it wasn't always fun to hear, but it was right. That's how the church works. They stimulated my children to love and good deeds, as it says in Hebrews 10, 24. That's what you want, isn't it? They tested my children's faith. You know, no one plays the role of Satan, the accuser, but as your student gets older and starts to question what they've always assumed was true because they've always heard it from you, what a blessing it is to have others involved in that process and for you to encourage that. Um, the Bible makes really clear, 1 Corinthians 11, 1, 2 Timothy 3, 10, 1 Corinthians 16, that Christians are imitators. How great is it to have other people in their life, other than mom and dad, for them to look at and say, I want to be like her, or I want to be like him. That's how the church works. And yes, it was somewhat frustrating at times. They would get in the car after church on Sunday and say, um, you know, some basic truth that Ann and I have been saying for 15 years every day, but because the high school pastor said it, the skies opened up, the light came down, and they now possess truth. <laughs> I, I, I just can't imagine anything better than that. And by the way, pray for the people that are in youth ministry. They're doing God's work. And they may be doing that work for your children. If they aren't, they should be. You're missing out if they're not a part of that. And by the way, don't get mad or intimidated when a 19-year-old comes up and wants to talk to you about your child. You should rejoice. You should be glad that somebody cares. So let's talk about the transition from the full house to the empty nest. We'll take five, ten minutes with this and then be done. There's some patterns I think you can start now. For those of you with all your kids are at home, there's patterns you can start now that will carry you right over that gap between a full house and an empty nest. For those of you that have the empty nest, you're over that gap. There's things you can do now um, because ultimately what we're going to talk about is the end of life. Remember, at the end of life now, we're jumping to that stage where your children are not required to obey you. Therefore, it is not appropriate for you to require them to obey you. The relationship now is based on honor, and I want to talk about that a little bit. The first pattern you can start now or you can do it after the kids are gone, but you should do this. You should talk to God about your children. We call that prayer, by the way. Pray for your children. I think you should thank God every day for your children, just like you should thank God for every other good gift he's given you. Children are a gift, not just when they're dependent and obedient, but at every stage of life. There is no qualifier in the Bible when the Bible says that children are a gift from God. At every stage, they're an expression of God's love for you and his kindness towards you. I think you should pray about your relationship. You should pray that you would be a source of encouragement, joy in their life, a source of love and blessing, and occasionally maybe even agreement with what they're deciding to do. You see, they're making decisions that you're not going to have any control over, and there's, you have no basis to even express that you disagree with it. 
unless they ask you, and they may not ever ask you. Your prayer should be that in whatever that context is, that you are a source of encouragement, joy, um, and blessing in their life. And how do you pray for them? Well, I'm going to give you a list. I'm going to go through it really fast. You don't have to write this down. Just look at the beginning of Ephesians in chapter 1, Philippians 1, Colossians 1, 2 Thessalonians 1, and Philippians 1. It was Paul's habit that when he wrote to a church, he said, this is how I'm praying for you. Go look at it later. Here's how he prays for Christians. I think this is how you should pray for your children because they're human beings. Give them, that God would give them a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Isn't that a great prayer for your child? I don't care if they're five or 50. That their love for Christ would abound, that they would grow in real knowledge and all discernment, that they would approve the things that are excellent, that they would be sincere and blameless, that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, that they would please him that they would bear fruit, that they would increase in the knowledge of God. Anybody hear anything you don't want for your children yet? I mean, this is, this is rich, that they would fulfill every desire for goodness and, and the work of faith with power, that the Lord Jesus would be glorified in them and them in him. There's the ultimate prayer. You can go through and look at Ephesians 1, 2 Thessalonians 1, Colossians 1, Philippians 1, and pull that list out for yourself. It's in my Bible. That's how to pray for people. And if you're praying for other people, why wouldn't you be praying for your children, even today? And if you have young children, you pray for spouses, for your children. You pray for them the same way. All right, number two. Number two, understand that requiring obedience to you is temporary. And I know I've already said this, but i got to hammer this one more time. Requiring obedience to you is temporary, and at some point requiring their obedience is wrong. You must require obedience now. You must not require it at some point. Examine your perspective on this issue now. Where are you on the spectrum? And it's a different answer for each child. What changes are you going to make as you move down that spectrum towards no longer having that authority? If you have an adult child, demanding their obedience is not biblical. Those days are over, and that should actually be a great relief to you. I don't tell you that as bad news, but as very good news. Calling them to obedience to Christ is biblical. That is helpful. Number three. Hard one. We're dealing with the gap between the full house and the empty nest. Number three is stop demanding your children's honor. Stop. If you're there, this applies to you. If you're not there, you're looking towards that gap. Understand that you can never demand your child's honor. You know what I mean when I say that? Who can demand their honor of you? God can completely between them and God. Honor is earned. It's not acquired. And honor is defined by God. It's not defined by you and me. And it's one of the most difficult words in Scripture to try and interpret and come up with a parallel word that adequately describes. But essentially, it's this. It's preference. So if I honor you, 
if I think we should go there and you think we should go there, I'm going to give preference to you and say, let's go the direction you want to go. That's honor. Honor is giving preference. Honor is not telling your adult children you're going to spend all your holidays with me. Or honor is not saying you're going to raise your children the way I raised you. Honor is not saying you're going to marry who I say you should marry. Honor is not saying you must make the career decision that I think you should make. You see that? Honor is giving preference. And to honor anyone, you must be humble, and that humility must be expressed practically through giving preference. To be honored, you need to be honorable, humble, devoted, and loving yourself. Okay? You know, perhaps children don't show honor because they haven't ever seen it in the family environment. Honor starts well before the kids leave the house. Do they see mom and dad honoring each other? By the way, the Bible says to honor all men, right? You're aware of that? Honor the king, honor all men. What does that mean? Give preference. What ultimately does that mean is there's a humility. On issues that are not, thus saith the Lord, they are preference issues, and there's a humility as you approach those issues. And mom and dad, when you get to this place, honor your children. Honor your children. Give them preference. They qualify as all people. You should be devoted to them. Love them. Demonstrate that love through honoring them and never demanding that they return that honor. You can pray for it. And maybe the fact that they don't demonstrate that honor demonstrates an issue that they have between them and the Lord. You pray for that issue. Because they haven't understood the importance of obeying the Lord in all things. But you can never require and demand that honor. And I would make the case you can't find a place in the Bible where you can demand anybody's honor. Much less your own children. Love your children. 1 Corinthians 13 isn't just a description of marital love. It is biblical love. And it's a great description of the relationship with your children. And I know this is hard, but ultimately it describes how your love should be viewed by your children. Is it patient, kind, not jealous, not arrogant, not acting unbecomingly, doesn't seek its own, not provoked, doesn't take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endure all, endures all things. Your love for your child should never fail. Whatever they do, whatever they become, your love for them never, never fails. So, prepare now for the gap. Your young, dependent children are going to leave the nest. They're going to become independent adults. How is that going to happen in your home? And what is that going to look like? And then as you transition your home from a full nest to an empty nest, 
develop the discipline now of talking to God about your children. I promise you, you think you pray a lot for your children now when they go off to college and you don't know what they're doing. You will pray more than you ever thought you would. Understand that requiring obedience to you is temporary. Point to Christ. Point them to Christ. And stop demanding your adult children's honor. Okay? I hope that's encouraging to you. We covered a lot of material. The fire hydrant was on this morning, wasn't it? And I realize you're not going to absorb all of that. But what I really hope you realize is that I want you now walking out of here to be thinking about things. We did it at a 30,000-foot level. I really want you to be thinking about things together, mom and dad, together, thinking about how you're going to get to that finish line. And all for the glory of God, and I will tell you um, that he is so kind that you will reap the benefit um, down the road when you become parents of adult children. Okay? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the clarity of your word. Lord, I pray that I might not have gotten in the way of that this morning. Lord, uh, I pray for each of the parents here. Lord, Holy Spirit, work on each of the hearts here this morning. Apply your word as only you can and will. Lord, we pray for the children represented here in this room. Lord, we pray um, that you would save every one of them if that's your will. But be with these parents as they as they guide these children, teach and train these these children. Lord, may children from Grace Church grow up to be men and women who are blessed because of your promises that they fulfill the role that you designed for them. Lord, be with each of these parents. Give them supernatural rests. Give them wisdom. Give them discernment. Even give them the words to say as they navigate the great challenge and the great joy of parenting children. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.